Welcome to the Alex Kapranos podcast. I am Alex Kapranos and this is the place where you can hear my entire interviews from the Absolute Radio Show, where I chat with musicians and artists I admire peer-to-peer. Thank you for downloading this episode where my guest needs no introduction. It is the legendary... Well, I'm going to introduce him anyway, aren't I? It is the legendary Johnny Marr. Johnny Marr, absolute legend. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Alex. Yeah, we got here in the end. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, we had a bit of a struggle, didn't we, with the technology. We were just talking about how uh, in the studio you can, like be the master of uh, audio stretching and Pro Tools when it comes to operating a Zoom link, it can be a, uh, a little bit too confusing. <laughs> I, I, I think it's to do with desire. I think when, with technology, musicians, uh, even if they think they're not into technology, if you, if you want to get a song going and you're, or you've got a song or you want to make a record, it, it's just that plain kind of desire that gets you to learn the technology, I think. Yes, yeah. If you can see the goal in the end, if you can see something that you want to do. Uh, and I was exactly the same at school as well. You know, like when you're learning at school, uh, you're motivated in the subjects that you enjoy and the ones that you don't. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I maybe didn't work. As um, unfortunately, we can't be in the same room today, which is why we're, we're speaking remotely. Where are you at the moment, Johnny? I'm in my studio just on the outskirts of Manchester. It's a top floor of an old factory. Uh, it's an old mill that was built around by 1890 something. Uh, I've been here for about six years and I love it. I spend far too much time in here. Uh, why not? It's just, it, I don't know about you, Alex, but I spent so many years in rooms with no windows. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I, oh, you got windows in the studio? Oh yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's these huge ceiling to floor big old, big old windows at the top floor of an old factory, just this big white sort of space. Kind of looks like, um, it looks like an old kind of um, loft space in the 60s or 70s, really. Oh, it's, it's very, it's got a sort of industrial, real industrial kind of vibe to it, which actually has seeped into the music somewhat. The very first thing I did when I moved in here was plug a drum machine, an actual drum machine, DMX, into a load of pedals, um, and um, to have that process, the because I had all this association with the industrial music process, like uh, Human League, Cabaret Voltaire, Perubu. Yeah. So when I moved into this industrial space, I did this track. First track I did was called Actor Attractor, and um, it was built on just getting this drum beat and putting the drum beat through a distortion pedal and then a, a, a space echo. Um, and that was purely because I was thinking. I'm in an industrial space. Let's make an industrial noise. And then I did it again. The second track I did was called uh, New Dominions. And uh, for the same reason, same process. So it's it's never too far away. I think, I definitely think your environment uh, affects you, whether, you, whether you're conscious of it or not. It really does. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you're right. So many studios, do you not feel that studios are often built from the perspective of an engineer? rather than the perspective of a musician. They're like kind of like built to sort of like fulfill the needs of an engineer rather than create the vibe that an artist wants to perform in. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, 100%. Because when I started out as, as a boy, I guess a teenager, trying to, uh, trying to get demo time, it, I mean, it was, that was a, a whole story in itself. They were so expensive even just to make demos. First, uh, 
time I was in the studio, when first Smith's demos were made, we went in the studio on New Year's Eve because uh, it was the only time, I knew it would be the only time it would be free. I mean, as in no charge because uh, no one would have been in there. That's how skint we were. But anyway, back then studios were still late, in that late seventies, everything was dry. You know, it's all about these dry records, dry drum sounds, which are, yeah. well, if I, if I had my choice today, I'd probably go with that now really. But, uh, and then, <laughs> and, and then I saw them evolve over the eighties in, into what we think of, imagine when we think of eighties records, like very, very, the control rooms got bigger and then the studios had these really live rooms and it's all, you know, over that 10 year period of the eighties, I'm thinking about it now, I definitely would particularly not, not, not necessarily in Smith sessions, but when I've worked with other people, um, the, you know, who are kind of posher, I guess a bit more, ma you know, ma um, uh, major labels, then you, you started having 20, you know, there'd be like 18 drums around the mic, uh, 18 mics around the drum kit. Oh yes. Yeah. And sometimes you don't need that too, but it's funny, you're, you're right. Like, uh, if I think of those Smiths records, they've got quite a sort of like a, an ambient sound to the drums generally. And do you think that's kind of, you're either consciously or subconsciously kicking against what's just gone before you. Did you find yourself doing that? Well, there's a bit of both there. Yeah. I mean, there's the two reasons for that is that, um, we were definitely kicking against what not only had gone before us, we're definitely kicking against what gone before us without a doubt. Um, uh, uh, but we were also kicking against what was going on around us as well, which mm. was a lot of electronic pop, you know, I mean, I, I'll think of, you know, there would have been, I guess, uh, a mainstream electronic pop. It would have been, whether it was wham, although, you know, got to meet George Michael, lovely guy, but, um, much missed, but there was that, I, I say one, because that really was a defining sound. Producers like Swain and Jolly, I guess, um, bands like living in a box level 42, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure they're all very nice people. Nick Kershaw, uh, you know, uh, how Howard Jones. <laughs> That was, that was the surrounding, when people talk about the eighties now, um, they think about it in two ways. They either think the first thing they think of is Duran Duran on a yacht. Uh, <laughs> that's a very defining image. And, and that also is, uh, becomes perpetrated by programs, TV programs you grow up watching about the eighties. So it becomes, it's an easy go to, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh, and you either have that, um, or you. You know, and then you've got the live aid culture, but that's all, that's all that. And then, or in probably the, the circles we sort of moved in, Alex, more so it's in the indie bands, you know, you'll think about the Cure and sure. New Order and the Smiths and the Bunnymen and all of that kind of stuff. And I think that is a pr pretty fair polarization. If you're going to polarize a decade, which I know is a very reductive way of looking at things and things are much more nuanced, but in terms of what we're talking about, recording culture and ideology, say, um, uh -huh. I'd think that was a pretty, pretty straight, that's a pretty fair dividing line. You've got bands like, you know, living in a box and level 42 and who had their mainstream, very produced, uh, sound. And then you had what the Smiths and the Bunnymen were doing and, um, yeah. And then, and then other, other more obscure indie bands, whether that's James or, um, 
the wooden top. So I'm just looking at rough trade bands. So yeah, I think I think you can I think you can produce a dividing line there. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I was uh, uh, slightly younger than you in the eighties, but I do remember it's being very, very polarized as well. Like there was the kind of the alternate world, and there was mainstream world, and that seemed to change massively in the nineties when the alternative world, like, like bands like Pulp and Blur and uh, o- o- Oasis, kind of like hit the mainstream, and they became kind of like the main pop music. Do you feel in recent years it's become more polarized again? I, this may be a particular, very, very reductive way of putting it. Um, and it, it also probably may just say more about me and where I'm at in my life and my age and everything. But, uh, I, I think that, um, what I hear as being in the mainstream is, is incredibly commercial and incredibly, yes. incredibly straight. Now, at the same time, I don't slavishly follow trends and I certainly don't, I, I don't think it's a particularly dignified uh, sort of pastime to, to, for an older person to be like wanting to keep up with the trends or anything. But I do sort of like, you know, I do, I do still follow kind of what, what young bands are doing. I don't know how that happens. I've just, I've always been like that. My family like that, you know, whether my brother will tell me about a track or my son or whatever. I just, you know, so in other words, I, when I think of someone like Self Esteem, for example, who, who played mm-hmm. with, with me and my band not so long ago, we're on the same bill, or obviously bands like Wet Leg or Goat Girl, or um, mm-hmm. I, I, I do go, oh, well, there are young, young musicians uh, who um, are trying to break into the mainstream, or maybe they are mainstream, who are actually saying something quite interesting. Lyrically, they're saying they've got a quite interesting position. And I know that you, you know you'll know this because you you you're, you produce other bands, and um, uh, so you you like to think that oh actually maybe it's not so straight, but I think really mainstream straight culture to me it, it, I think it's the oral equivalent of reality TV shows. I I, I think I really when you, when you get into what are uh, I asked someone in uh, a major. Uh, label recently what what constitutes a hit uh, only a couple of weeks ago and there's a couple of people in, and they both said well what, 100, maybe 100 million streams maybe and then someone else said well now I mean you're getting up to 200 million and I'm thinking on one song over a couple of weeks is that right? Yeah. Um, so I think those kind of numbers uh, require a very, very mainstream approach. So I, I think yeah. that's a very long way of saying that. Uh, I, I think my, what I was going to say was that the, the reductive answer I have to that is I think you're either really straight or you're not. Yeah. It also seems that a lot of that major, major mainstream pop music that's been written at the moment is, is written from quite a, even writing doesn't seem like the right way of putting it. It's, it's written from a, a cynical perspective, you know, like they're written by committees and yeah. the, the songs are broken down into elements. You know, the, this, there's so much factory type music that I, I love Motown, that sort of thing, which would maybe a similar sort of stuff. But today there seems to be a little less personality in it, in some of the super mainstream stuff. Would you, is that what you're kind of saying? Or? Yeah, I think it's, it seems to be somewhere along the line, the paradigm seems to have been, even for interesting thinking people, that it's absolutely okay to be really pretty pretty vacuous i mean i'm not yeah. that's before i get into even you know what uh, th- this kind of 
what seems to be just real normal standard uh, uh, a pop song now, which is just this, I mean, let's call it confessional, but it just seems to be like the very worst sort of self-help book I've ever read in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I read a quote of yours recently, which was kind of like uh, kicking against that like uh, confessional style of songwriting, which was uh, you were saying something about like what's wrong with singing from the brain. Is that right? Is, is that yeah? Is that, is, is that your approach to to writing lyrics? Would you say? Well, well, what happened was when I started with the solo stuff, uh, and people naturally, for the first time, I was being asked about my lyrical standpoint. This was in twenty twelve because of that this me, me and my band have been gone for 10 years now. Um, I definitely had an agenda. One of the things that inspired me to do the solo records was that the, the, the lyrics I was writing were entirely from that, kicking against that, because it seemed like uh, it was the start of everything I was hearing was confessional and about people uh, revealing their inner world. And then this on mass uh kind of it seemed like everybody was standing in a field looking up to the sky kind of saying we'll get through this adversity no matter what we can make it we can make it and i was thinking well, it's quite ironic because we're just now coming through major that the world actually did go through some adversity which is a, yeah a, major adversity yeah but but i was thinking well what is this adversity that we're all like trying to fight we're all trying to get through with our credit cards and our, our our social media and you know our comfortable lifestyle in the west you know uh what is it what that what, what these songs that are kind of like we look up to the skies and you know we can do it we can do it and i thought well susie sue didn't do that she was singing about being spelled no, no. with christine the strawberry girl and brian eno was singing needles in the camel's eye and uh, and David Byrne was sort of singing, and she was, and I was like, well, for me, at that point, I thought, well, someone's got to start singing about more shallow things. <laughs> but it's, ironically, like look, looking at some of the lyrics on your your last record, the the Fever Dreams Part One to Four, I've got some in front of me here as well. I I do feel that the some of the songs like Night and Day and Spirit, uh, Power and Soul, there is a feeling of yearning for something like it, it does feel that um, in the verses, there's almost like a, a reckoning with uh, negativity, whether that's like from a, a, a wider perspective uh, and then searching for some kind of redemption or something greater. And is that something that's part of you or am I reading too much no, of this here? Alex, you, you've totally busted me there because uh -huh. my previous answer uh, is completely different from what I did on the new album. So you're absolutely right. right. Because I, I ended up, I found that going into the album, which was just pre-pandemic, I what happened was really was that in, in spite of what I said, so my agenda that I set out to, to, to do, on the first album I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a lyric, uh, I did this song called I Want the Heartbeat. And um, I, I, it's about a guy who wins the lottery and he, it's about fetishizing technology. I had this idea and I thought, well, okay, what, little, what, what kind of story can I come up with there to, 
I like the idea of fetishizing technology. So I wrote this story about uh, a guy who wins the lottery and he buys an ECG machine, a heart rate machine, and he starts, I mean, he's on that machine more than he is with his wife and he falls into the <laughs> and, he, and he gets away and every, he just locks himself in this room and, and just becomes, as an effect, so it's this song, I Want the Heartbeat. And I was very proud of that song because I thought it was quite funny. And, um, but at the end of that album, uh, uh, which was, I thought, you know what? There was something in my subconscious. I don't know whether you had this, but I thought there needs to be something of myself on this album. I need to write something mm -hmm. personal and I need to just drop all of that stuff. And, and, and it was right at the 11th hour. And I wrote this song called Newtown Velocity, which was about the day that I decided never to go back to school again. And myself and my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, Angie, and Andy Rourke, who was my best mate, we went and walked around town and I just talked for about four hours. And I said, this is where we're going. We're going to form a band. Me and Angie are going to get married. We're going to walk around. It was under this blue sky. Me and Andy, we're not going back to school. We're going to do and, and I just mapped out this idyllic future and it came true. So the lyric and the choruses, it turned out, like I said, it would kind of get the world right here. Step out. It's uh, left home a mystery. Uh, leave school for poetry. Uh, say goodbye to them and me, Newtown Velocity. So it was just this completely autobiographical description of a day with me and Angie and Andy. When we faced that July dawn in uniforms, one and one, no wrong, we chased that summer down. So anyway, I put that personal song right at the end of the album. And for all my pontificating and all my theorizing, it became by far my most popular solo song. Brilliant. I, I think I learned then that audiences really do, whether they know it or not, they don't know the backstory, they can sense something personal. That was really interesting. It was a lesson for me as a lyricist, really. And that's went in the back of my mind. So on the second album, Playland, I still had, I had an agenda to carry on writing about the world and not writing about myself. Mm -hmm. Thou shalt not write a confessional song. <laughs> and I wrote everything about, about everything I could, except there was one song called This Tension, which was essentially about my own neuroses. And again, that was a really popular song. So anyway, when I came to do the previous, the last album, the current one that you're talking about, going into it, uh, I, I don't know whether you're the same, but you don't sit down and map out an agenda, but you have these little voices in the back of your head sort of going, okay, where are you going to go on this next one, Johnny boy? What, sure. what is it you're going to do? You know, what happened was at the start of the, this album, Fever Dreams, you were talking about, that voice in my head, which was, okay, you know, where am I going to go with the next album? What would that look like? What mountain am I going to traverse? I just had a feeling that I was going to have to go inside a little more and and not chicken out on that and go there and, and it would make me a better writer but you so you're absolutely right a lot of the songs i found that i fell into this process where what is happening is that essentially in the verses i'm i'm sharing uh a certain kind of neurosis or uh i don't think depression's a bit of a strong word but self or introspection or paranoia introspection negativity, uh, worry, all of that. And as a songwriter, I, I'm doing that not to get it off my chest, but because... Or to find an answer to it, or...? No, it's because I think my audience can relate to it. Right, okay. It's to, it's to connect with the audience. Because I, I 
over the, the years now, particularly with the solo band, it's been very illuminating for me because I, I kind of know who my audience are. Uh, uh-huh. I started to know that during the Cribs and Modest Spouse when, when we met. And I started to get a real sense of my audience, not the Smiths or all the stuff that happened with that blow up and what, how they feel and all of this, how I'm projected through the press. and Because uh-huh. all of that went on with me in my 20s and 30s. I started to, as an adult, go, oh, okay, these, the vibe of the people who come to see me are, oh, I like them. They like me. They, they, they kind of feel like they know me a little bit. And then year after year, these people kept coming back. Uh, getting a sense of my audience and the vibe in, in my gigs. So more and more, I've gone into the writing of the record going, uh, what I can tap into in myself that is like their experience, mm-hmm. that they'll like that. And so, for instance, with Spirit, Power and Soul, for example, you know, Lay Awake Too Long, Dark Has Come, Hope Has Gone, I think there was a lot of people during the pandemic who would lay awake at three o'clock in the morning worrying about their jobs. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And the state I, of the world. And, and like you mentioned, night and day, that is entirely, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's all TikTok to me, stop the clock, please. I just want to breathe in the hot spots. That song is a, a pop song. It's actually a, a song about Black Lives Matter disguised as an, an, right. an inane pop ditty. Wow, that's amazing. It's funny though, like you're, you're talking about like, so like making the connection with your audience. And I've always felt that if you're going to make a proper connection with the people that are in the room with you when you're performing, you have to open up to a certain vulnerability. You have to make yourself vulnerable. And that's the only way you can connect because they have to be vulnerable and they can only be vulnerable if you're vulnerable. And that's how you are with, with any French. If you think of how dogs are with each other, you know, when, when a dog meets another dog, they lie on their back to show their soft part. Then they can say, look, I'm being vulnerable. We can be friends with each other. You see? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel as an artist, you've got to do that as well. And it's interesting what you're talking about there, because what you're saying is essentially you're doing the same thing lyrically that we do as performers on stage. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't do that. I don't think I, I show vulnerability on stage because from being a teenager and doing what I do, I sort of accidentally just perform and go into a mode on stage. I mean, I mean, yeah, we've known each other a while now and I, 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 I know that I'm, I'm quite friendly and I like people, you know, uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, maybe it isn't, but most performers, when they get on stage, there are a lot of performers who are introspective. And they're quite, say, fairly quiet. Say, Polly Harvey's a really good example of it. When mm-hmm. she gets out on stage, she's really formidable and really goes for it. I'm like the opposite. Uh, right, interesting, I, I, interesting. When I go on stage, I show my nasty side. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the opposite. I sort of sh- show my... Going on stage to me is, is, is a way of get, being really serious. Um, when I'm off stage, I try and be... be I'm sort of, I, I like people. I try and be really super friendly and I'm really interested in what makes people tick but when I go on stage I'm a little bit more I'm a bit more serious and I express it's not an act it, it's a more kind of heavy side of me comes out really right it's the opposite right. I just would see all these performers talk about how they're introspective off stage and they go out on stage and they're and they're extra. whereas you're the opposite I'm yeah yeah the opposite yeah but, you've always been very outgoing yeah that's true yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm different on stage but I'm really when I go on stage I'm really I'm, I'm extremely serious mm-hmm. It just, it was a way of me getting my less polite side out 
Um, so, because uh, I was just brought up to be really polite. But um, with, lyrically, though, uh, I've been finding a way of being authentic and entertaining. And I find that really as well that what's worked for me, this has all been a, it's been discovery for me, Alex. I'm sounding like it's I've got it all worked out, but it's just been discovery of these four albums. I'm interested lyrically in, I guess, perception. I'm interested full stop in perception, in the way the mind works, how we perceive things, uh, consciousness. Sometimes it's cosmic consciousness, which is a term that was invented by this, this philosopher and psychologist Richard D. Book who wrote his book, Cosmic Consciousness. And this comes out from reading Carl Jung when I was a kid and, and taking psychedelics and meditation and all that. I, I'm interested in perception. And I think it's quite, it makes for quite interesting subjects for songs for me. Sure. And so do you, do you still like, meditate every day? Yeah, I've done for years, yeah. But, um, so I'm interested in that. And, that, that, and psychedelics were very profound for me as a, as a, a youngster and, and even really up to not too long ago. And, um, and I find that they're pretty, it's a pretty good area for me for songs. And a lot of my songs really, if you look into them, are about being confused. And because I find that, uh, the business of being a human being is quite confusing and partly because of, partly it's because of other fucking human beings, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but yeah. Is that what art is for, though? Like art, like allows us to understand what it is to be a human. I know for me personally, that's what the greatest art does for me. It allows you to understand what it is to be a human being. And I'm not talking about just music, but like sometimes you stand in front of the greatest painting, and you can't even articulate it with words, but somehow you just understand a little bit more of the. I'm gonna say emotional landscape, but it's wider than that. It's just humanity. You know, if you stand in front of one of those like huge, imposing Rothkos, there's like like just a, a sense of understanding that you didn't have before you saw that exactly well um one of the things about be, doing what we do uh people have asked me this over the years and i'm sure you get the same is oh if you're a musician do you listen to music in an in a analytical way and i think actually the answer is yes you know i can over the years you'll know this if you wear a new band or someone gives you a demo say you can often you know you can go oh okay well the keyboard player is obviously really into garage music and the bass player thinks he's flea and the singer thinks he's <laughs> Tom York. And, you know, we, we, we just know too much. Right. Um, so yeah. that's the whole other thing, but with visual art, for example, I have protected that naivety that I've got and I've resisted my usual impulse to know everything about it because of what you just said. So I, I can, Stand in front of something I particularly like. It maybe it's something from the Bauhaus or whatever, and um, I kind of go, I don't. I'm actually got, not going to buy the book and read about Rothko. I'm not going to buy because I just want to experience it the way non-musicians experience music on a yeah. completely abstract, intuitive level. And I just go, I don't know why this makes me feel amazing or why it makes me feel heavy. And I don't want to know. And I've done that with the visual arts. I've really 
totally protected it because kept the purity. Yeah, because with music, I just pick it to pieces. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly. I know exactly. What you, did you find that you look to other art forms or other other mediums of art for inspiration? Like, do, do you look to visual okay. arts? Or, oh, or yeah. I know with the Smith Cinema was obviously like inspiration for you guys. And is there anything at the moment that's been particularly inspiring you? Um, let me see. Um, I've gone back to, again, really, it's like what I was talking about with consciousness. I got, I went back to the writer, Colin Wilson, who was writing, uh, he, he wrote on all, almost too many subjects. The one thing about him, he, he just, books just poured out of him from the sixties onwards. He wrote the original Outsiders and, um, I, I've rediscovered him, uh, and, um, um, so when I was writing the album, I've just come off writing this double album and, um, actually, as, as we were talking about, it was to do with, so I, I, I didn't want to write a pandemic album. I just thought that was just too basic, but because I, I was writing about confusion and the, what in my way, in my way, um, the, the, the human condition, uh, you know, maybe being still being a fairly cryptic and, and all of that, I, I, I was looking just towards the TV. So it, to really answer your question, no, I haven't found anything particularly new, but I'm about to start writing again uh-huh. and I'm, I'm going to go into that. Well, I'm just about to go on tour for seven weeks with the killers, but I'm hoping to uh, do some writing and recording as soon as I come back. So therefore I'm in that place where I'm kind of wondering now, uh, I'm wondering about, you know, what's going to fill up the well really. And right. Right. So you're searching at the moment when you're searching for something. Yeah. Yeah. I think I am. I'm in this sort of interesting place cause I wasn't really expecting that I was going to write because we just finished the record. Yeah. But, um, I found that it looks like I'm going to have some time when we come back. So it is an interesting, this is with it really in a matter of like a couple of weeks I've been thinking about this. I'm sort of, you know, going to my phone and I'm, my antennae started to go on again, where like when people are talking to me, a little bit yeah, yeah, yeah. conversation and it's a great, th- it's a really good thing that, you know, that sort of reawakening of, uh, of your antenna going back, you know. You know, you, you were talking earlier about in the eighties, right? Reacting against what was going on around about you and, uh, to what had happened in the seventies, whether it's the sounds or like the ethos of the bands, do you ever find yourself reading against what you've done yourself? Like saying, like you were talking about it earlier with the lyrics, but you find musically you can go, right. I had this kind of sound before I've got to like discard that. I've got to go and search for something. Oh else. yeah. Yeah. Well, the, well, the biggest example for me with that was with electronic with Bernard and, um, and Neil Tennant, of course, Carl Bartos, yeah. where Bernard would he would be practically begging me to play guitar on a song. And what's quite funny, he would say, he would say, everybody's going to blame me. <laughs> That's amazing. Fever Dreams had quite a big electronic feel to it as well. And a major dance yeah. feel to it. Do, do you still dance yourself? Do you, do you get off on dancing? Yeah, I, I have actually realized it's a good question that I've, I've, I've kind of amused myself a couple of times over the last sort of several months when I found myself playing a track really loud and involuntarily busting some moves, you know? Yeah. And what a great thing. 
What, it it what, is good, isn't it? A fantastic thing. You know, there'll be some obscure electronic track that will come on or, you know, and you just, you go, this is ridiculous, but it's kind of good to feel ridiculous sometimes. Do you talk about that time with uh, electronic, with put it in, uh, Carl from Kraftwerk, like, that's incredible, like, like working with these other guys, but did you spend much time in the Hacienda and that kind of particular dance scene? Well, I went to the Hacienda. So the Hacienda, okay, uh, I went to the opening night. I w- when I worked in the clothes shop in town, Ben Kelly, who was the designer, came in one day with Mike Pickering, who used to come in the shop all the time. And then we all know from M people, but being the DJ that brought house music into the Hacienda, which he was, um, uh, Mike would come in the shop and he came in with, oh no, sorry, he came in with Peter Savile. And who I'd met before, I was a, a shop assistant, but everybody knew me, you know. And, and he literally had this plastic, uh, cardboard tubing and he, I had never heard of the Hacienda. I didn't know, no one knew there were even going to be a club. Uh, and he, they, on, the, on the shop counter, he pulled out the blueprints and the, the plans and he rolled them out on the counter. And I, I often think, well, I thought of that. And I was an 18 year old kid and Mike was so excited. They'd just come from the meeting and they unrolled, they unfurled the blueprints for the Hacienda. And I was looking at some of the blueprints and they already had the name Hacienda. And I went, oh, okay. And he'd just come from this meeting and he was very excited. And he said, we just bought this building and all of that. So I was privy to that. And then the opening night, a bunch of us went down there. And then what people don't realize, this is quite I enjoyed talking about this in my book that from 82 to the, the acid house explosion in 88, late 87, 88, it was a venue that was too big, too bright because the daylight came through it. So if it was a gig in the summer, which, you know, if Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds it was or Twice were on or, or Simple Minds or whoever was on in this summer, it was literally light while you're watching the band and the sound was dreadful for rock music and all this. The other, um, so for all those years, I mean, I was busy being in the Smiths, but when we moved back to Manchester, my mate, my best mate had a hairdressing salon in, in the, in the dressing rooms. So I always remember, I think it was Lloyd Cole in the commotions arrives there to do a gig in the afternoon and we're a bit sniffy about their dressing room having all these Mancunian stoners sitting around having the haircut who didn't give a shit that the band had arrived but my mate was so charming this hairdresser Andrew Berry was so charming that when I saw the band arrive on stage all of them had brand new haircuts <laughs> so the band had got there we're like what are all these wasters doing like you don't give a shit who we are in the in our dressing room what, what is this is there there's a hairdressing salon in the fucking dressing room <laughs> and, and you can't see because the, the the air is so full of hash smoke and but every single member of the band had a new haircut when they went on stage and one of them had a, a bernard sumner haircut one of them had a, haircut, one of them had a rising haircut yeah. That is amazing. That is, it's funny that like, you, you talk about the haircuts and you talk about working in the clothes shop. Do, do you, I mean, you, you're very much known for your sartorial presence as an artist. Like, like, is that something that's still important for you as well? Is it important? When you go on stage, do you like to look yeah. good, essentially? Yeah, it, it is important. I try many years ago, uh, I'd... I, it occurred to me that vanity is bullshit. And I, I really hope that 
uh, you know, me, my interest in clothes or say style or presentation um, stays connected to where it started, which believe it or not was me and my sister at maybe nine or 10, um, being tribal with a whole load of other kids on a council estate. And I genuinely, I've occasionally try to keep that in check where I've got, well, hang on a minute. Uh, the, that was because the first one thing about that is that, and I think it still goes on to this day. I don't see any reason why it doesn't. Um, but the, I think that for me and my generation, uh, and the kids I grew up with being like, oh, he's got a football jumper on. Uh, he's got a star jumper. He's wearing petrol blues. All of these clothes that me and my sister used to be obsessed with. I've got to get a pair of tweeds and all this stuff. That was my first, not only, so all the things that people always say about this stuff, it is a way of expressing yourself. It's a way that the working classes can show off a little bit. It, in my case, it was, it was an obsession. It's being a peacock. It's, it's trying to impress girls and trying to impress other boys. All of those things are true. But it occurred to me recently that that was my first uh, experience of design. It, which is mm -hmm. something that stayed with me all my life. I was the, to see what the older boys were wearing and notice that, oh, okay, well, he's put those different laces in those brogues and the Lancashire Rose that has been sewn on, the Crombie on these scooter boys, these suede heads, well, that, that coat doesn't come with that. So he's actually sewn that on. And um, so I, I, when I got a Crombie, I, I changed the lining of the always came with a, a red lining and because I was a Man City fan, I just couldn't stand that. So I put the silver lining in and, um, <laughs> uh, and it looked really good. And the customizing of your jeans, I mean, we see people do it now where the jeans are up around the shins and stuff. Uh, that never left me. And it, it's, it's not to do with vanity, but it first, so what I'm saying is it was my first artistic not only expression, but it was my first artistic experimentation. And it's, it's working classes. Back then it was the working classes first, uh, experiments in design. It's what you have at your hands is what you have available, right? Yeah. If you put this shirt together with that jacket, it isn't just following the flock. If you mix it up a little bit, you, or you are noticing that you're creating identity. Well, you're definitely doing that, but it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a way of redesigning things, I think. Yeah. It's interesting you're talking about like uh, you and your sister and your pals on a council estate in, in Manchester. I'm guessing this is like the 1970s. And when the Smiths came out, like you, you were like four working class lads from Manchester, unashamed of your intellectual aspirations and had the opportunity like, to, to fulfill them. Do you think for working class kids from Manchester today have the same opportunities at their fingertips that you had? Do you think they could do it in the way that you could then? I do, yeah. I absolutely do. See, I, one of the things that I was proud of even as we were doing it, um, which surprises me that I was this aware, was that we, we had come from working class backgrounds. Uh, none of us, none of the band went to university, which... I know now in 20 odd years, now that becomes like almost like no choice. It's an interesting thing. My generation, you, uh, you, it, you were in the minority if you wanted to go to university. Perhaps, 
possibly because there were other opportunities. A lot of lads I went to yeah. school with that actually they they became electricians or got in the building trade. And Alex, I tell you, I, I occasionally see them now and they are driving Porsches. Uh, we're in the wrong business. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so nothing wrong with that. But in the in the Smiths case, um, the fact that we really pushed it in terms of being, you know, okay, so it's an obvious example comes to mind, being photographed in front of Salford Lads Club, uh, which is probably the most memorable image of us, which was literally maybe, what, 10 minutes walk from where I grew up uh, as a young child in Ardwick. But at the same time, um, talking about Oscar Wilde or talking about Shirley Delaney um, and using those as our reference points, uh, I was I was pretty proud of that, and I, I actually thought this is interesting. That's the thing. More so than being proud, uh, I, uh-huh. I thought that that was interesting. Um, and and maybe something that hadn't been expressed in art before as well. Like I, I think well, maybe maybe the Beatles, you know, because John Lennon maybe I think he was more of an intellectual. But I think what I was going to, but interestingly enough, one of the things that I liked about Fontaine's DC and like about Fontaine's DC or your band is that um, for some reason, a, a number of years ago, I think when I joined the Cribs, the quickest way of me describing a certain kind of usually British and often guitar music was just to say it was street music. So your band, I know, you know, you went to our school, but I, I, I would put your band in, in the way I describe, I would call it street music. Um, so Buzzcocks would, would be street music. Yeah, usually it involves guitars. <clears throat> and um, it's because it is people who, it, it, it's too, I don't like just saying indie music because it's got, I don't have too many connotations these days, but um, I remember talking to the Cribs about it. Uh, when I first heard the Cribs, I thought, oh, I really hope they've got a whole load of songs. When I heard Hey Seamsters, I thought, oh, wow, this yeah. is so great and so clever. I hope they've got loads more songs as good as this. Turns out they did, right? And... Um, I'd sort of thought of this lineage from Buzzcocks through X-Ray Specs, through the Smiths, uh, I guess, yeah, New Order, the Mondays, Franz Ferdinand, the Cribs. Uh, I just imagine them like a singles box of one of those boxes that you put 45s in. Love 45s. And all of these bands who happen to be from the UK. Yeah. All of this common commonality. Uh, yeah, it's guitar music, but it's more than just that. And you know, you can put a felt single in there. You can put Joseph K in there. But I sort of, for some reason, I, I thought my shorthand for that was street music, you know. Fontaine's DC, are the, are the, are the, for me, the most recent one of those bands who was going to that singles box. That's amazing. Cause I, I totally agree with you. I, I always felt that indie wasn't the correct term for describing the kind of bands of who belong to that category of what you were sort of talking about earlier, like the the not wham sort of world, like coming from the other world, like like I guess in the states they called it alternative rock or something like that. But there's never really been a proper term for it. But yeah, there's there's definitely what, the two worlds. And what, I, I, what interests me about those, what is that? It's a sort of term of endearment because uh, all of those bands I mentioned, including your band, Alex, that they. The music sounds like it's from the street, but the lyrics sounds like it's like they've been thought about. That's what I find. Oh, yeah. Really interesting. But whereas some indie stuff, the problem with 
the term indie is that there's a strain of indie which says it's okay to be not too bothered. And again, that has its, uh, right, place. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That has its place where the lyrics yeah, yeah, yeah. are, where the music may be, uh, the, you know, say, but problem I had with C86 move, movement was, oh man, if it had got any more faith, petals would have come out of the fucking focus. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to do any uh, collaborations with the Killers when you're on tour with them? Yeah, I think that's 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 likely. Yeah, uh, because you know, I mean, uh, it's one of the really, really lovely things about being a musician and about my life as a musician from uh, from when I started is being invited to to play with other people. It's a thing that's particularly ran through my. My musical life, uh, look, in, in 83, uh, I worked with, uh, I worked on a factory record with Mike Pickering and Bernard Sumner. That was the first time I worked with Bernard from New Order. And um, he was producing this record. Uh, and that was when I, I made the Smith's first, I was making the Smith's first album when we did it. Um, so in other words, it isn't a matter of like, you know, that sometimes I read about myself, gun for hire, journeyman and all that. And you know what? It used to annoy me that, but these days, whatever. Um, Why would that annoy you? That's that's amazing. Like when I when, when I think of all the people you've collaborated with over the years, it's like totally stunning. I mean, but you did you did a Bond theme as well, like like with with Billie Eilish. You're working. At, was was that? I mean, when I was a kid, you know, like like uh, the thought of getting to play music in a Bond film. Yeah. Was like, oh, be did you did did you have that as well? Or I, I absolutely when I. Uh, I was playing with the, come and play that theme with the orchestra. And everybody knows it, one of the reasons why it's the first thing, one of the first things you ever learn on guitar is, is, is because it's so simple. Uh, it's, of course, yeah. yeah it could yeah. be easier. And just before I was, just before we did it, and we're about to do it with the orchestra. Uh, and I was about to play, I was like, oh, do not fuck this up. It's like, uh, <laughs> not now, Johnny. Not now. Uh, Amazing. It's so simple, but you, I mean, some, you give me something really intricate that of like, you know, that I've had to rehearse. Like there's some, some other movie stuff that I'd, like on Super, uh, Spider-Man 3, uh, there's a thing that I did. I wrote it. It's so oh, yes. it's yeah, a yeah. play. Uh, but I never have a problem with that. But that Bond theme was like, oh my God. But yeah, it, so it was a real moment. It was such a moment, uh, I had to, and I really overthought getting my sound right and all of that. So, and it was great. You know, people ask, I've been asked um, a lot about working with Billy. You know, and um, uh, that that was amazing because I've said about her before. I get asked, so working with a she's a young pop star. I'm like, yes, she's a musician. She is a young pop star. She's also a musician. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, yeah, that collaboration thing, you know, it's been great. It's been really, really good. Uh, I've, I just think I've had such an, for a guitar player, I've just had the greatest job. It's yeah. Good. Matt, I, I mean, the, the, you know, I mean, the, the, it's just been amazing. And Modest Mouse, of course, as well. I mean, you're a massive inspiration to so many guitarists for quite a few decades now, myself 
completely included. You know, like, like you're one of the guys that made me want to play guitar. I, I, I spent hours trying to work out how to play. What difference does it make? And never quite getting sound right. But do you wear that lightly? Do you feel comfortable with that? Or, or do you tend not to think about it? Well, I'm told I wear it lightly, you know, uh, and I think that's, that's a real compliment. Uh, yeah, I do because, um, I just hear all, all the places that I could improve, you know, and I'm glad Um, about that. I'm glad that, you know, the thing is, um, I I was so, uh, I was, I, I so loved everything about the guitar as a little boy before I could even play it properly. Uh, Everything, you know, we all have that. And now I'm an adult and I've got grown-up children and all that. I think it's understandable if if I lost, it would be understandable if I lost that, but I haven't. And because I haven't lost that sort of, uh, sort of viewing of it as a sort of magical, a magical toy, if you like. Yes. It's also uh, a machine to make pop music on. Um, Um. and I can look at it as this and fetishize it as a beautiful object. And I really genuinely feel lucky to, to have discovered it as a boy. Uh, I, because of all of that, I, I practice, you know, I, I, ah, did you play every day? You'll play every day. Yeah. Do you still play for fun? Like sometimes I still pick up the guitar. It's like, wow, it is the greatest thrill, isn't it? Like, you know, it's, it's such a, yeah. I, I think we're lucky to have found a thing in our lives that, that gives you that kind of joy. Oh yeah, and some days, like the other day, I came in here and I was on my own, and I play. I was playing it so loud, and uh, I'm, uh, a few hours later, I was I got home and I was just really burnt out from like playing this is so high volume, and it is like getting in a when you do that, it's it, it's it is like getting in a, a racing car and just going around the track. Yeah. It's just blowing. Yeah, it's I was the- trying to write a new song. I was I was just just blowing. It was making this proper racket. Uh, Playing uh, for the thrill of it. Yeah, you know, and and what's happened is over the years, because I've been with Angie from being a teenager and she loves guitars and, and my son's a really good guitar player and uh, even my daughter can play guitar. The, the um, guitars are just everywhere. Yes. And, and you know, my daughter, you know, Sonny is not known for being a guitar player, but when she got a guitar, she got a, she wanted a Mustang. She got a Dakota Red Mustang. And we're, so we're all with... Does Sonny play guitar as well, does she? Like- she, she hasn't played for a while, but she can play, yeah. And um, and Niles are really, you know, Niles plays in all these weird tunings and all of that. So, you know, I think I noticed when I would go out on my parents, because my brother used to play as well, that um, the um, guitars in, around me and my family, they're, they're like people, they like the way people have plants in the house. You almost don't notice them. They're just in every room. <laughs> they're just there. When I first met you, Johnny, it was uh, it was backstage with the Cribs uh, in the Barrowlands, the, the famous venue of the Barrowlands. And uh, I remember talking to talking to Gary, uh, Gary Jarman, and being a little nervous about meeting you. Like, and uh, and just saying, like, what's he like? Is he all right? And Gary said, no, nice, lovely guy, really easy to talk to. And I was like, okay, okay. And uh, I was like, that's a big deal for me. And I said, I said to Gary, um, do you think he'd... Uh, you think Johnny had shown me finally how to play? What difference does it make the proper way? <laughs> and I chickened out. I chickened out that night. So I'm asking you now, Johnny, would you one day show me how to play that riff properly? Uh, next time we're on, Alex, we're, we're definitely on. Yeah, of course I will, man. Um, 
you you've got to show me how to play uh, right thoughts, right words, right action. Now <laughs> that's easy. It's just two strings, man. It's easy. <laughs> but literacy making is quite easy as well. You're probably overthinking it. Uh, I think I probably am. Yeah, it's funny because you see those. Do you ever see those YouTube videos like where people show you how to like play a song? And like I, I saw one for some of our songs, and like oh my god, it's like you've made that so complicated. Like you, you literally, you just have to keep your hand in the same place and move your pinky or something like that, you know? Um, so yeah, show, show, show me that. That'd be amazing. Innovation does come out of, um, innovation does come out of, of putting two and two together and making five though, or, or putting two, two, two together and making three, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw that when, um, I saw that when, when Bernard and I, Bernard Sumner and I, and Bernard is a major craftwork nerd. Well, the yeah. very first time we went to Carl Bartos' studio and he had all the craftwork equipment all set up. Uh-huh. And um, he was asking Carl about how, how he made this, this noise on Trans Europe Express, I think it was. And, uh, and, and Bernard said, so did you, did you take a polymoog and did you then hold this one key down and then did you move that filter and then send that filter through a phaser and then put distortion on that phaser and then put some echo on that. And Carl said, no, we went, switched on this rolling machine and we just hit that preset and I just did that. <laughs> and, and, and Amazing. Happened, Sometimes it's just simplicity, isn't it? Yeah. And, but what had happened was that Bernard in mishearing that and in his, his imagination, had made him make these noises with new order where he'd, he'd gone through this whole elaborate uh, process and that gave new order. Uh, I've tried to find this. And then, yeah. That actually specifically happened with a kick drum sound on Blue Monday where they, he was going for, him and Steve were going for this, trying to go for this craftwork sound and they went through this whole process, uh, uh, made this kick drum sound and then years later, when Kraftwerk wanted to do a remix of some track, they phoned up Michael Johnson, who was the engineer on Blue Monday, to ask him how they made the kick drum sound. And it was, so that was Kraftwerk doing New Order, doing Kraftwerk. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. Johnny, it's always a total pleasure talking to you. Uh, have a great time on tour around the States. I'm sure you're going to kill it, man. Um, hope to bump into you again before too long. And Yeah, it's been too pleasure. long, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. Johnny Marr there. I hope you've enjoyed listening along. Thanks to everyone who has given this podcast a follow and a rating. Feel free to recommend to a friend as well. And if you fancy coming to see me playing live and maybe singing rather than speaking or playing records, uh, I'll be playing with my band, Franz Ferdinand. Uh, We're going to be playing in the UK on October the 19th and 20th in Manchester at the Victoria Warehouse and on the 20th in Alexandra Palace. And then again in November the 10th uh, in Glasgow at the Hydro. So uh, we'd love to see you there if you want to come along. Also, if you're not listening in the UK, we're going to be playing right across Europe and we are going to be in the States as well. So if you're in a more exotic location. Well, how can you get more exotic than than Glasgow? I don't know. If you're somewhere else and you fancy coming down to a gig, just check online and you might see where we're playing. Uh, I'll be back on Absolute Radio on Sunday at 10pm for the Alex Caprano Show. 
keep an eye out for the next episode of the podcast as well, and hopefully see you then. Thank you.